If you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Two weeks ago, before I went home to get my family, we kind of did an overview of the book of Ephesians. We're going to be working through the book of Ephesians. And I'd like to invite you on Sunday night. Somebody asked this morning, um, but we are going to start Sunday evening, not this evening, because it's 4th of July weekend. And so I want you to spend the time with your family. But uh, next Sunday, and I also told somebody, guys may throw me out. I don't think, I haven't done a Sunday service since y'all hired me. Is that okay? (laughs) I'll ask you in front of all these witnesses. So, But nevertheless, next Sunday, we're going to start with full vigor uh, on paralleling through the book of Ephesians uh, um, and a biblical ecclesiology. Now, those are just fancy words for the study of how the Bible says the church works. Um, Ephesians has a lot to say about that. Ephesians is written to, as you see it there in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and to the saints who are at Park Bible Baptist Church in 2022. It's written to us no differently. So that word saints there, I don't know, how many people feel like a saint this morning? You can raise your hand if you love Jesus Christ as your Lord because you are separated from this world. And that's what the word means. Holy, separate, set apart. By the way, that's what the word for church that's translated church means, ecclesia, called out of. Those who are called out of this world set apart as saints, the church. So we're going to study that on Sunday evenings, and I know that you'll be fascinated with that if you'll come. I told one lady that was new to Sunday school this morning, we start at 6, we get done about 10 p.m. Actually, I I told her the truth, and I said uh, I preach um, fewer minutes on Sunday evening than I do on Sunday morning, and she'd have to wait through the service this morning to find out what that was. So I invite you, beginning next week at 6 p.m., to come and do that study with us. I think it will enrich your understanding, because it's this book of Ephesians. The first three chapters give us what God has done for the church, and the final three chapters, verses, or chapters 4, 5, and 6, give us what God expects of the church. Uh, it's the imperatives and indicatives, if you rather. Um, it's what God's done for us from his perspective. Remember, Paul went up into heaven and brought down God's perspective of salvation. We're going to get into that next week more as we get into the third verse. Because from God's perspective, salvation looks different than it does from a world with sin. And we believe that, you know, it has a big part to do with us holding on tight enough when it's all Jesus holding us tight. So to see it from God's perspective is a high exalted view. And that's what Paul is giving us here this morning. So let's, let's, uh, let's get right to it this morning. Let's begin in verse 2. And I'm going to read that. We'll have a short prayer and get started on this grand truth in verse 2. It's about peace. It's not a mystery. It's about peace. And and the word order here is so important. Grace, peace, God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just keep that in your heart. That's what the verse says, Ephesians 1-2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul says to these Ephesians, to the church today, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Father, as we come this morning, uh, I'm humbled by the the fellowship of your people. As we open this word this morning from uh, the Holy Spirit given through Paul, 
written some 2,000 years ago for our edification and growth today. Will you grow your people? Will you hold on tight to them and fill them full of hope that they're going to need to live in a world like we live in? Will you do that perfect work in them? Father, overcome my inabilities. And through the power and work of the Holy Spirit, speak to your people this morning. Change their lives with your truth. Give them a better, a better understanding and a deeper knowledge of who you are and what you've done in your son Jesus. We pray with much anticipation this morning over these things. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a certain truth that in this first epistle to the church at Ephesus that Paul encapsulates the entirety of the whole in this little greeting. And good writing does this. I don't know how many of you all spent some time writing, and, and it's, um, it's not my strong suit maybe. I love to communicate, uh, but I love to do that from the, the spoken word as much as I do from the written. But my spoken word is better when I pay attention to the written word. So he lays down this thesis, or any good writing lays down a thesis. It's a point, a theory, a, a statement one wants to prove in the body of the work. And Paul sets off to prove in the body of the work of Ephesians what his statement is. But it's in the proving of that thesis, of that statement, of that truth that he wants to do. It's in the building of that body of work one lays hold of a, just a, a rigid certainty about the subject matter that's being spoken of. You, you get a, more, uh, a better understanding, a fuller grasp, if you will, by writing the body so that when you get done writing the body, you have a fuller grasp on the subject matter. This is why we study the text. Each word, each verse, each paragraph, each book, it all has meaning. It all has words from the Holy Spirit inspired by that Spirit that goes into us and changes us. It's an interesting fact that we don't fully appreciate the depth of the work until we do the study that it takes to require, that it requires for us to understand uh, the depth of the work. And the Bible is something that the more you study it, the deeper it goes. So you're never disappointed that you spend time in study. This is a lot like I started out my life, as many of you know, in engineering department uh, for a company that made race car components. And I experienced innovation in this type of respect early on. I was 19 years old when I started working for this company, and I began to work for a man directly under him in the engineering department at that time, and he was doing proprietary work in engineering, work that had not been accomplished before by a machine. He was porting cylinder heads for hot rod engines. Now all you girls are going, yay, we're going to talk about hot rod engines, right? But at that time, way back in the, as I like to say, the 19th century, actually it was the 20th, okay, um, that was not done. You see, the, the, the process that, that ported the heads at that time, and by the way, the heads of an engine cause the engine to breathe, and the better the engine can breathe, the more power it makes. There's the simple understanding of it, right? The more power it makes with the same process, the better it can breathe, because that's all a, a combustion engine is. It takes in air fuel puts out exhaust. It has to breathe, and it makes power when it does that. So to get that air and fuel in just perfectly, uh, these great grand engine builders, uh, men with tons of experience, would do this porting by hand. And it would take hours upon hours. 
But Kenny had figured out a process, and it was just new to the machining world at that time, five-axis machining. The only thing they were making were jet airplane engines with it. And he had figured out a process to do that tedious work in about 1 20th of the time. And not only did he do the tedious work because there's 16 ports on the average V8 engine, right? He did it exactly the same on each port. He mirrored each port identically. This caused the engine to have more balance. It breathed better. It made more power. It was kind of like um, uh, the holy grail of engine building. How's that? It was, a, it was a fantastic leap in innovation at the time. And I happened to be there with him and for that part of it. And I would see people, men who had been around racing cars and racing engines all their life, they would come and go, well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> they had no way to fully understand the depth of the work that was taking place because they had not spent any time leading up to that knowing what it took to accomplish this finished product. They couldn't respect it because they didn't understand what it took. It would take days to, just to begin to tell them all the processes needed to, uh, to engineer this tooling and equipment to do this work before they could just begin to respect it for what it truly was. I think that's the same here in Ephesians. And scripture goes even further. Paul had written a body of this work and was the, often the case he would go back and write the greeting earlier, or after he had written the body of the work. He would write the greeting to the letter. So this is where we find Paul in this epistle. He had been given this magnificent revelation by the Holy Spirit of God about the marvelous mysteries of salvation from God's perspective as it comes down to man. And don't stop there because this is where the technology takes place, if you will, the human technology, the love, the salvation, all of the wondrous and tremendous works that we're going to learn that God has done on our behalf to take us from a sinful person that cannot stand before God and exchange us to change our hearts into someone who can stand before God. Paul had just written this magnificent marvel, and now he's going to summarize it in this greeting. And the summary of that is, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as so many have written and expounded before me, we do well not just to gloss over the fullness of these opening words. Paul gives us these marvelous truths about peace that is, I'm telling you, it's life-changing. I hope it's life-changing to you. As I said about 12 years ago, I preached to Ephesians. I couldn't wait to do it again. And when I get back to these things and begin to add to this, it, it just thrills my heart to lay hold of the truths of the Christian religion. It will strengthen you. These are marvelous truths. They are life-changing truths. You see, skin has robbed away things from you, right? Scripture gives them back. That's the grace that comes in Scripture. Sin is taking away. Uh, the Bible would say the locusts have eaten, but God's giving back what the locusts have eaten. Peace with God is the ultimate in the truth that we're going to set forth this morning. Peace. What is the Apostle Paul wanting to tell these Ephesians and believers today? Because that's what we have to ask to get to the bottom of the depth of the richness and treasures so rich in, in this little, little bitty verse in chapter 1, verse 2. What is the Apostle Paul wanting to tell these Ephesians and believers today? I believe that it is peace comes. Peace only comes through the experience and relationship to God 
and who he is. The foundation of that is knowing who God is. And we're going to get to that. But there's something we need to know in the beginning. It's only by the grace of God can we ever, man ever experience true and lasting peace, especially in this place. We know of the peace to come where there's no more sin, no more shame, nothing bad will be around, no external pressures for us to sin. That's called heaven. But what we want to know is how we can have peace in this place because that's what Paul was writing about. He was writing to these Ephesians. He's saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Only by the grace of God can man ever experience true and lasting peace in the world today. Peace with God is peace within the man and with man. Once we are reconciled to God, this is what all of Ephesians is going to teach us in chapter 2. The middle, where, uh, the middle wall of partition is broken down because of what Christ has done. We can access the bro, boldly the throne of grace of God. And it's through that grace of God we have peace within ourselves. We quit striving in this world. We quit trying to be our own God. We quit bumping up against the Ten Commandments and God's holiness and saying, no, I want to do it my way. And that's, by the way, why the world looks like it does. And we begin to see that God's way is the way of human flourishing. Is that what you've experienced as a Christian? I tried to do it my way a lot of years up until I was 27. And then I figured out there's a better way. And it's through what God has taught. And it is through our reconciliation with God we can be reconciled with our fellow man. Fellowship with God, fellowship with man. This truth lays directly at the heart of the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the heart of the theme of the epistle to the Ephesians. We are first reconciled to God, then we have peace within ourselves, and we can have peace with our fellow man. Two truths flow out of that that we're going to uh, chew on just for a little while this morning, maybe a couple of hours, I don't know, maybe three. It won't take too long, I promise. Man cannot institute peace in himself or his surroundings apart from the grace of God. Let me say that again. Man cannot institute peace in himself or in his surroundings apart from God. And the second is the corollary of that, really. Only reconciliation with God can bring peace because he sent the Prince of Peace. Only reconciliation with God can bring man peace. This is why the word order of this little verse is paramount to unlocking the peace of God found in the Christ for the believer in this place and throughout eternity. First, man cannot enjoy peace in the land apart from God. That is, man cannot institute peace in himself. There is no peace. And we see that by looking in at our world today. We, this is not a stretch, any of this. this is, these are foundational things we just need to assure ourselves of this morning. So whether you've come with this understanding or not, what has always been known about man by any thinking men and women is that man is himself his own worst enemy, right? I was my own worst enemy until God saved me. Man has no answer for sin is why. Absent the grace of God, man descends into chaos. And I could run a rabbit trail here a little bit because abortion tells us that man's answer for the sin of making a mistake and becoming pregnant before wedlock is to murder the baby. But, but that's the chaos that man descends into. Romans 1 says it best. I'm going to take this rabbit trail whether you want to or not, right? Romans 1 says it best, that whenever we purposely suppress the truth of God, he gives us over to the things that we're running towards, right? It's how man descends into chaos. It's how our world looks like it does today. I'll stop there. 
Abraham Lincoln's Lyceum speech, January 27, 1838, points this out. It's a truth that's been known through all of American history. It's a truth that uh, Aristotle and great Plato before him and greats forever have dealt with, and that is how to have peace, peace within yourself and peace with your fellow man, and how that peace directly affects the life in which we live. But Abraham Lincoln's Lyceum Address is important to the conversation this morning, and I, I love the words of Abraham Lincoln. This is kind of a three-paragraph hit here this morning. I won't take too long with it. In the great journal of things happening under the sun, I love his flowery speech. In the great journal of things that, that's taken place under the sun, we, the American people, find our account running under the date of the 19th century of the Christian era, we find ourselves in the peaceful possession of the most fairest portion of this earth as regards the extent of territory, fertility of soil, and sublurity of climate. That means a climate conducive to living well. <laughs> we find ourselves under the government of a system of political institutions conducing more essentially to the ends of civil and religious liberty than any of any government which the history of former time tells us of. We, when mounting the stage of existence, found ourselves the legal inheritors of these fundamental blessings. We toiled not in the acquirement or establishment of them. They are a legacy that's been bequeathed to us by a once hardy, brave, and patriotic, but now lamented and departed race of ancestors." Theirs was the task, and how nobly they performed it, to possess themselves and through themselves us of this goodly land and to uprear upon its hills and its valleys a political edifice of liberty and equal rights. Tis ours only to transmit these, the former, unprofaned by the foot of an invader, the latter undecayed by the lapse of time and untorn by usurpation to the latest generation that fate shall permit the world to know. This task of gratitude to our eternal fathers, justice to ourselves, duty to posterity, and love for our species in general all imperatively require us faithfully to perform. In a nutshell, what Lincoln was saying is that we've received through the blessings of God and our forefathers, the fairest and most fertile of lands, by their hard work and their shed blood, and we only to keep it and to pass it on to the next generation. But listen, listen to how he relieves this tension. How then shall we perform this? At what point shall we expect the approach of danger? By what means shall we fortify against it? Shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step over the ocean and crush us with a single blow? Never, he says, all the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined, with all the treasure of the earth in their military chest, and with a Bonaparte for a commander, could not by force take a drink from the Ohio River or make a track on the Blue Ridge Mountains in a trial of a thousand years. A proud man Lincoln was. He put great establishment in the military might of the United States. So he says this in the final paragraph, at what point then is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reaches us, it'll spring up from amongst us. It will not come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and its finisher. 
As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or we will die by suicide. Lincoln, as many leaders who preceded him and many who came after, understood that America's demise would come from within. Why? Because it's there in the heart of man, a restlessness, untamable by anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man is not at peace with himself and cannot be at peace with himself until he be reconciled to God. So let's define the word peace. Let's work on that just momentarily. A truer understanding of the word peace itself will help us to comprehend Paul's message this morning. Peace is not the absence of conflict, is it? But conflict is inevitable because of the sin of man. Peace is the assurance of our eternal hope and final deliverance by God in the midst of all conflict. There's going to be conflict in this world. We know that. In the midst of the throes of this life, we need to have something deeper than ourselves to hang on to, and that is an understanding of who God is and what he's done in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peace is knowing that the conflict itself is meant to bring us even closer to the peace giver. Peace is often defined as that time between wars, right? It's when peace takes place, but is that true peace? Is man not, upon the ending of one conflict in his life, already anxious about the coming conflict in his life? Listen, I'm a child of the 80s. I used to get under my desk as a fallout shelter. I grew up with that hanging over my... You can laugh at that, by the way, because we know that those little metal desks were never going to stop the nuclear weapon that was certainly coming from Russia. You guys remember that? You younger people don't have any clue about what I'm talking about. Do you know about that? Do you get under your desk today? You do? Oh, my God. <laughs> How could this be true peace? The absence of conflict when future conflict is inevitable. Our desks aren't going to save us, folks. And the truth is it can't. I mean, there was only 20, barely 20, 20 just 20 years and a few months between World War I and World War II. And was that a good time? My grandmother used to tell me about the Great Depression and the way they grew up. There was no peace in that time, even though there was an absence of conflict, because the next conflict was right around the corner. And we could go on throughout the 20th century to the Korean War, to the Vietnam War, to the <laughs> Afghan, right? On and on and on. Peace is a problem when for us men. True peace contains more than just the quietness between strivings then. It consists of another component, and that is a fact about the world, it carries the connotation and I, about that word. It carries the connotation and idea of reconciliation. It's got a Latin component, pax, that means pactum. It means that there's something else about the word peace that goes on past just the absence of war or the quiet period between wars. That is that war has not only ceased, and the idea is that not only have the two sides quit fighting but they, and lay down their weapons, but they've agreed to fight no longer. That's what true peace is. It means that those who were once enemies have now been reconciled. There will be no more war. But here's the problem that Lincoln and many good men have recognized since. Man is not capable of doing that self, doing the, uh, this work alone in himself. John Adams said it specifically. He says, our Constitution was made only for a moral people. It was wholly inadequate to the government of any other by the way, he was our second president. How true that is. Why? 
James, in the book of James, chapter 4, the first three verses. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you, do, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. There's the human defect. It's called sin. Even when we do good, we do it for our own goodness, out of our own goodness and not for God's glory. This is what sin does. It's the passions within us that we have no full power over to completely change. It would be like us changing our hair color or our skin color. We can't do that. We have free will, but we don't have that much free will. We can't change the human heart and nature from the sin nature it is to the nature it needs to receive and to know peace. Passions, it's the passion of sin in the flesh. Man doesn't want to be obedient in the end to God. Man wants to be his own God. Here alone is the basis for the absence of peace in our world. There is no peace in man. He's at war with his conscience because what his flesh desires. He either has to do what he wants to do and place away the truth of God because his conscience is burning within him as written by the law of God. But the more you suppress that, back to Romans 1 where I was at earlier, the more God gives you over to the things that you would choose. We're opposed to the law of God and our sin nature. Until there is peace in the man and in men, there won't be peace in our world. Our great nation and that nation which John Adams and Lincoln spoke about is proof of the fact that when we were more wholly a Christian nation and a God-fearing people, peace was more prevalent in our society. But not now, because we see it with our own eyes, how far we've fallen. It is not hidden from those with eyes to see. Man has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and calls that which God calls evil good and that which God calls good evil. We see this day in and day out. And this will only send. I've taught you guys this before. It's a downward sloping continuum. When we look past our bad behavior to point to worse behavior to justify our bad behavior, we're pointing and heading in the wrong direction. But when we look up to the perfect promises of God, when we look up to what he's done, when we pull towards that through scripture and why he's reconciling us to us, it's a hard trail to go. It's really, really hard trail to go, but we're going upward towards God and all that is good in God. Our society, though, is drowning in its destitute of peace. Don't get me wrong, I'm so optimistic. It's drowning and destitute of peace and striving to find some calm, preserve, but it never seems to come. Things are becoming more disordered, not less. Our schools, even the best of them, are void of, uh, of the truth of God in a lot of ways, so they're void of any wisdom and discipline. Our city streets are lawless, and evil goes unanswered largely. Our marriages are broken. Our children are addicted. Our social safety nets are full to overflowing, and many of them broken for the same reason. And they're unable to help the herds who flock to them for some moment of peace. Our boys believe they're girls. But I'm wholly optimistic because I know what changes everything is a relationship with Jesus Christ. <laughs> In fact, I've said this over and over, not only to you all, but everybody that will listen to me for one minute. I'm glad I live right now. I would have never thought that God was going to overturn Roe v. Wade in my life, but he did. That's the God he is because this God loves life, and this God died so we can give that life. 
is through Jesus Christ. He's the Prince of Peace. They're just waiting to know the Prince of Peace. Carl Truman writes this in his recent work, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you haven't ever read that book, get it. Carl Truman, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. The origins of this book lie, again, this is in his thesis statement, the origins of this book lie in my curiosity. By the way, Carl's my age. I won't tell you how old that is, 32. Well, plus 25, right? Or 26, 24, 23. The origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. I want to say that again uh, because I stutter sometimes. And I want you to get this because if you don't get this, you won't get the next part. The origins of the book he's written lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. Here's the statement. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. He goes on to say, my grandfather died in 1994, less than 30 years ago, and yet, had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And I don't, say, I don't say that to make fun of anyone this morning, and that's not what Truman is doing. But Truman is merely trying to give us the history of why a statement like that could come to make sense among a people like us in this day and age. And he does a marvelous work with that. That's because man in all his wisdom doesn't have the truth that accounts for the problem of sin. We have the truth that accounts for the problem of sin. I said it to the Sunday school class this morning. I said, you know, you ever heard of somebody that's lost? They say when they read their Bible, I try to read it, but I just don't understand any of it. We got the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God who inspired this book lives within the believers. And he interprets these truths to us. It begins with grace. I said that word order is so important. He said, Paul says, grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. And all we need to do is go to Ephesians 2. Because as I said in this one little thesis statement, Paul is unwrapping all of the book of Ephesians. It begins with grace. That's because we have sin and we can't find our way short of the sin in our lives. We need a change that it is so drastic that our heart literally is changed, as Ezekiel 36 says, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We can go to Ephesians 2. Just look at the few verses there. Verses 1 through 3 is who the lost person is. This is why he can't reach out and grab peace. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit's now work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, dead man can't reach up for anything. Dead men can't bring peace. They are dead. Verse 4, but God, but God being rich in mercy came down in all of his benevolent love for us. In grace, he condescended from the highest place to come down to us to give us peace to die for us so that we can be reconciled to him. This is benevolent condescension that God has revealed himself to you in such a way. And for most of us, it was at our deepest moment of lost peace. He came to me when I was so sick of the sin in my life that I could only reach up and say, Jesus, save me, right? The law had pressed hard on my life. And for most of us, it was our deepest loss of peace is where God came to us, where we saw him the greatest. And I said earlier, this is why 
even in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the fire, we can receive more peace because it turns us away from ourselves and to look fully into his grace and peace, into his strength. It came in a deep, painful event in your life, and he has shown us the futility of man and sin and the evil. And we've seen it in our own soul and it is the glorious reality that God has revealed himself to us in such a manner that we might see who he truly is. And in seeing who he truly is, in seeing his holiness and his goodness, we see who we truly are. We're powerless, sinful, destitute. Look at the Ten Commandments and you stand up and tell me if there's one of them that you haven't broken under the rules of Scripture this morning. That tells me who I am. But it also gloriously, and this is the hope, this is the optimism, I want to live my life screaming this message from the top of the world, is that we can be saved. That God has provided a way for that big bridge that was between me and him that my sin had caused to tear down that wall so that I can be reconciled to him. Scripture tells us we can boldly approach his throne. Why is that important? Because this is where peace is found. Matthew 19, Jesus had a conversation with that rich young ruler. The rich young man came to Jesus and he said, What good deed, uh, uh, scare quotes around good, deed must he do to have eternal life? And Jesus responds thusly, why, why do you say to me what is good? Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. Focus with me on that, because here's, your, here's the basis for your peace. God is holy. He is set apart. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11 says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall this to mind, you, you sinners. Remember the former things of old. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. That's what that word saint means, set apart. We're separated. God is holy. But we know because of the Ten Commandments that God is so much set apart from us, so far from who we are. And the more we know about him, the more separation there seems to be. That's why the continuum goes like this. The more we know about God, the further down that other continuum we seem to think about ourselves. And that's a good thing at some point. But why, why, why worship a God like that? If he's so holy and so set apart for me, I can't get to him. What, what good does that do me as a lowly sinner here on earth? Let me tell you what good it does because God is holy. He is perfect. He's the same God that Isaiah 6 saw. He was high and lifted up and the train of his temple filled, or the train of his road filled the whole temple and all the seraphim were flying around saying, holy, holy, holy. This is God. He is set apart. He is so different. He is sovereign. Not one thing is going to pass his will, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times of things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. That's God. But God is holy and righteous. Stay with me. He's holy. In other words, he's not like us. He's not going to fail. He's sovereign. He's perfect. No mistakes, no lack of power to get something done that needs to be done. But he's also righteous. What does righteous mean? Everything he does is right. 
because he's holy. And if everything he does is right, it's good. And what is the greatest thing that the Lord has done for his people? Sent Jesus to die for our sins. Grace to you. He condescended and come down out of heaven into this sinful place. He died on the cross of Calvary so that I can be reconciled to God. My peace is in that foundation. If everything God does is good, beloved, everything that happens to me in this world is for my betterment. Even cancer. Even the car accident. The good things and the bad things. Because God is good. I can have peace knowing that he's in total control. He is the God that's holy, lifted up, righteous. And if everything he does is right, that means it's good. And the rightest thing he done was send his son, Jesus Christ. I don't want to let you go. Just two more minutes, please. Look at those last words in that paragraph, or in that one small statement. Peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in that formula, the Lord Jesus Christ. The God that is holy became our Father. We've been saying this on Wednesday nights. The God who said to the Son, shine, and out of the darkness it shone, is our Father. And we have to remember it like J.I. Packer says. We have to read it backwards too. Our Father is the God who spoke the Son into existence. He's our Father. We're adopted into his family. And how was that done? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his grace, we have peace. He is our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Very quickly, Jesus is Lord. That's the Old Testament word for God. Jesus is God. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not only God, he's Jesus. He's a man that came down, was born of a virgin who died on the cross of Calvary, was buried and risen on the third day to life because he's the Messiah. He is the one that reconciled us through his perfect work and death on the cross of Calvary to God the one who has all the answers the one who has all the power the one who never makes mistakes he is God I'll leave you with this one passage John 14 27 I'm glad Blake read it this morning peace I, my peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives it to you let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to a close this morning. My prayer is that your people know the peace that comes from the depth of the very nature of who you are. That at the very heart of who our God is, and not that we can know it fully, but that Scripture tells us specifically that you are holy and you are righteous. And if everything you do is right, it is so good. 
And that just simply translates into this world that in the midst of the conflict, you're working your good to those who are called according to your purpose and who love you. We can have peace because we've settled peace with you through Jesus Christ. And we can have peace in this place, peace in our hearts, and peace with our fellow man. Father, thank you for what you've done in Christ. My prayer is that that message was heard this morning, that it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ, his coming from heaven and dying and being raised to life on the third day. Through our faith and that work, we can be reconciled to you. It is the glorious gospel. It's the hope of this world. It was the hope for me, and it was hope for all those saints that are sitting here today. And it's in that we have peace. In Jesus' name, amen.